0: God, let these words be more than words. Give us the Spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You know what they say about assumptions? If you don't, I'll let you look it up later. The words aren't fit to come out of the pulpit, even this one. And today's readings are full of assumptions. Surely this strong, tall young man, Eliab, is the Lord's anointed. Thinks the prophet Samuel. And then Samuel learns the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel discovers the Lord has chosen the pipsqueak David. In Samuel's defense, Goliath got it wrong too. Assumptions can get us into trouble, assumptions keep us from seeing deeply. Jesus' disciples begin in today's gospel reading with an assumption. Someone sinned, and this man had to be punished. They assume a causal relationship between this man's blindness and someone's misstep, someone's sin. That's a big assumption. And Jesus reframes. This man was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. Jesus calls into question the whole relationship of sight and blindness, darkness and light, clarity and obscurity. Do you really see? Do you see? Are you sure? Now, I know John milks every last drop out of Jesus' metaphor today. That gospel is long, We all had to stand up quite a while for this one. You didn't have to hold a big brass book while it was read. (laughs) The book's heavy. The story's long. But I think there's value in hearing the the spiritual truth from Jesus again and again. Let go of your assumptions. When you think you see things clearly, look again. Are you sure? Do you have the vision all worked out? Assumptions are dangerous. When we think we hold the truth to the exclusion of facts, stories, and compassionate listening, we can cause a world of hurt to others and to ourselves. We all know this to be true. Many of us can recall a time when an assumption was made about us or about our family. Many of us can recall a moment when we made an assumption and it served us badly. A particular set of assumptions loom large in our country today. And those assumptions are about immigrants. In the town where I grew up, the Latinx population was booming. As a teenager, honestly, there were a lot of jokes made in my circle of acquaintances about Mexican immigrants. The jokes masked a fear. The city was changing. Language was changing. Even 20 years ago, there was a fear that arriving immigrants were taking jobs away from Americans. Now, the question of racism and ethnocentrism wasn't exactly black and white. It really never is. My circle of friends included Latinos. Sometimes a racist joke would be told by someone with a last name like Ortiz. I could try to unpack the nuances, but then my sermon might be longer than the gospel. Suffice it to say, the power of these assumed narratives was really strong. They definitely shaped the way that my friends and I saw immigration. In college, I joined the tiny LGBT pride organization on campus. Coming out at 19 was pretty early back then, especially on a Catholic campus. And joining Pride plays into my discussion of immigration and assumptions, because the Pride group, they met in the United Front Multicultural Center. Every other grouping in that center was based on race, ethnicity, culture, or language. The Black Student Union, the Asian Student Association, Filipinos, Pacific Islanders, Latino groups, all had their own spaces in the multicultural center. One afternoon in my sophomore year, I was hanging out with a few of the other pride members by the little desk that we had, while the association of Chicana activists were meeting nearby at a circle of couches. For those of you who don't know, Chicano or Chicana is a term that some Mexican-Americans choose to identify themselves. The name connects to indigenous Mexican culture, and it's a reclaimed word that connects them to the movement for liberation. As the Chicana group Acha was meeting, I overheard a student relating a story through tears. She talked about how hard it was to fit in at our college, a majority white, majority wealthy school. Nothing overwhelmingly traumatic had happened, but she talked about the daily small indignities that she faced when someone mocked her accent or asked if her parents were illegals. Back then, we didn't have the term microaggressions, to name this sort of thing. I couldn't stop myself listening, listening in as she talked. On one level, I resonated. As an openly gay theology major, I often felt out of place at a Catholic college, and sometimes was made to feel out of place by a professor saying something seemingly small and offhand, or by a fellow student intentionally using homophobic language. Our experience was somewhat similar, but on another horrifying level, as she spoke, I was becoming aware of all of those jokes for which I'd laughed. I had said things similar to the anecdotes she shared, or at least I'd had similar thoughts. It was like the scales had fallen from my eyes, and I could see simultaneously that this young woman was my sister, and that I had participated in causing her suffering. That young woman and I later marched together on our campus as part of a student movement which created a new policy against hate crimes and bias-motivated incidents. And we still talk every now and again on Facebook when she's got time. She graduated with honors and these days she's a very busy organizer and activist in the labor movement of Southern California. Many of you know that my experiences standing along Latinx people did not end in college. I continue to work against the narratives that I inherited. But my working on my own interpersonal assumptions alone, it's not going to cure cultural blindness. There are a lot of assumptions that we have about the immigrant community, a lot of assumptions particularly around Latinx immigrants. One, in particular, I want to talk about this morning. As a matter of policy, the United States government makes an assumption about migrants from Latin America. Unless they can prove otherwise, every person hoping to come to the United States from this region are considered economic migrants. We assume, as a matter of policy, that they are coming to take a job. In 2014, a major wave of unaccompanied children and youth started arriving at our southern border, fleeing intensifying violence in their neighborhoods. These youth and children came especially from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. While the numbers have ebbed and flow, and the media attention has also gone up and down, it's a wave that has kept coming. Our national policy automatically considers these young people economic migrants. Officially, we assume that they are lying to get into this country for a job. We make that assumption of little kids. Since 2014, the fastest growing group of people being apprehended at our southern border are children under the age of 12. Back in September, in this pulpit, Noah Bullock from Cristosal, our organizational partner in El Salvador, told the stories of families fleeing death threats. Not long after Noah spoke, one of my favorite students from the year I spent after college teaching English and music with the Episcopal Church in Honduras, a young man named Charlie, was killed by a gang. Charlie once told me that he'd like to come to the U.S., but he knew he'd never be able to get here legally, and he was too scared to come without documents. The gangs regularly threaten and extort migrants making their way up through Mexico. Hundreds are killed every year en route to the US. Charlie feared for his safety. A group of gang members killed him and his girlfriend for his cell phone and his motorcycle. Our national assumptions are wrong, and lives are at stake. The Episcopal Church is running an underground railroad in response right now. In El Salvador, the church has safe houses to get people out of harm's way. And Cristo petitions for refugee and asylum statuses for those who are fleeing violence. They're expanding their operations to Honduras and to Guatemala right now. It's clear to me that the Episcopal Church in the United States should be one of the final terminals of that railroad. We should be able to welcome those who flee violence. What isn't clear is how we can make that happen. Politically, we seem unable to shake our assumptions. In the 1980s, pastors were driving across the Mexican border to pick up Salvadoran refugees without papers. A lot has changed in those, since those days. As I said, the road through Mexico has become much more violent, and our immigration enforcement has intensified on the border. I don't yet know, I can't see clearly, how we can make this railroad work. But I do think that this vision has merit. How can we provide for the safety of our sisters and brothers? As an aside... I don't want to make you nervous about the trip that we are taking to El Salvador this spring. And sometimes assumptions can work in favor of our safety as North Americans. The gangs assume that groups coming from the United States are good for tourism, a growing industry across Latin America. The violence directed at their neighbors, they avoid directing at folks coming from the U.S. They go out of their way to ensure the safety of North American travelers. Christosal has been hosting groups for more than a decade and has never had more than a, a more serious incident than pickpocketing occur to one of their visitors. I say this not to help my point, but to reassure our group that's going and their families. Yes, El Salvador is a violent place. Holy Communion is sending a group to El Salvador in part because we want to ask. Teach us to see. The way to move beyond assumptions is to listen, to look, as Samuel heard, not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. We're going to spend time with our sisters and brothers. We'll break bread together. We'll talk about the realities we face. We are considering this relationship with El Salvador because as Christians, we believe that we can only see the whole picture when we include diverse perspectives. When we can ask another human being, how do you perceive this situation? And we can take time to listen deeply, to get to the heart of matters. Can I share with you a slightly irreverent reflection on this gospel story? I was once talking about this section of John with a youth group, and a young woman stopped the whole group by saying, that's disgusting. Jesus took dirt and spit and put it in that guy's eyes? It helps to slow down and listen to how a young person sees the gospel at times. Admittedly, this story of healing, of receiving sight, it's a little gross. But somehow it strikes me, this too may hold some wisdom. If we are to learn to see the world as Jesus sees the world. If we are to see one another as sisters and brothers. If we are to let go of our assumptions about sin, about status, about race, religion, orientation, and creed. If we are going to make a real change to our nation's immigration policies and become a more welcoming nation. If we are to approach one another with a little more grace... The process is likely to be messy, like mud from spit and dirt. God's grace is in the mess. God's vision, it's for those of us who often feel stuck in the mud. In fact, according to Dante's gospel, if you've been feeling a little frustrated, a little stuck, a little blind lately, that's good news. You're on the right track We're the people who believe in the God who is with us through the valley of shadow and death. God already sees you and loves you better than you can love yourself. God's works will be revealed. Let go of your assumptions. Amen.